The International Association for Near-Death Studies presents NDE Radio, a weekly exploration of near-death experiences and similar encounters with the other side. Now, here's your host, Lee Whitting. What if NDEs could have a theological voice in reconciling religions? What if NDEs could indicate a change Jesus brought to God's judgment of humankind? Welcome to IN's NDE Radio. I'm your host, Lee Whitting. On this Memorial Day, I'm going to take a different approach to the exploration of NDEs with the hope of moving a tiny step closer to reconciling the reality of the near-death experience with some Christian denominations that have refused, by and large, to acknowledge the existence of NDEs, despite the fact that millions of people of all faiths have experienced and have been changed by these first-hand mystical experiences. For example, I recently went to see the film version of Heaven is for Real and couldn't help but note the underlying drama that was not that the child's uh, had an encounter with Jesus, but how profoundly dysfunctional his home and church family became when he told them about his NDE. His father, a pastor, was practically incapacitated by the possibility that his son might have met Jesus in the now. The congregation was equally distraught. It was as if those professing Christian faith could not accept the basis of their faith as being really real. All religions, it seems, are filled with not-yet assumptions that distort our capacity to look reality in the face. Only the little boy had the ability, at least for a while, to comfortably integrate the reality of this world and the next. So today I'd like to explore a somewhat different theological take, especially on Christian thought about the role of Jesus in the world. This is not the question, what would Jesus do, but rather, what did Jesus do? And can the nature of NDEs demonstrate what about uh, the way we die changed after Jesus did what he did? Now, let me begin by saying these observations are my own and do not reflect the beliefs or goals of the International Association for Near-Death Studies. Keeping that in mind, let's look at what many Christian faiths say about what Jesus came into the world to accomplish. St. Paul was probably the first to compare Jesus with Adam, calling Jesus the last Adam in 1 Corinthians 15.45, while in Romans 5.19, Paul argued that just as through the disobedience of the one man, meaning Adam, um, the Many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, Jesus, the many were made righteous. In other words, where Adam and Eve screwed up our relationship with God, Jesus provided the repairs needed to facilitate our way back home. Traditional Christians believe that change came because Jesus took on the sins of all humanity, and his sacrifice on the cross made it possible for nearly all sin to be forgiven. Therefore, the essential relationship between God and mankind was changed in that sacrifice. The final sacrifice that supplanted all of the animal sacrifices, uh, the doves and the, and the goats and the lambs that had been conducted by the priests at the temple um, to gain a temporary forgiveness of sin for the Jews. Presumably, too, 
His death on the cross supplanted the need for reincarnation to free Hindus and others from the burden of a sinful karma. Presumably, it also freed the Buddhists from the scary entrapments of the bardo where demons and temptations tried to lure the dead from their journey to the light. As Pope Francis recently said, Jesus didn't sacrifice himself just for Catholics, or even just for Christians, but for the whole world. The Pope even added atheists to the list, which, of course, annoyed the Vatican folks no end. Now, many Christians believe that Jesus only died for the sake of Christians, that is, those folks who acknowledge Jesus as their Savior. And personally, I think Jesus came for everyone who follows the great command to love God and one another, which is a basic tenet of all faiths. But no matter, we needn't get tangled in denominational disputes at this point in the discussion. Now, a little earlier, I said Jesus made it possible for nearly all sin to be forgiven. There was one exception, he said in Matthew 12:32, Anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. It's interesting that Adam and Eve had just one sin to deal with as well. It was symbolized by eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What happened was they broke fellowship with God and thereby lost that covering of grace that had been their protection, the grace of God's love. The unforgivable sin Jesus refers to is in many ways the same sin as Adam's. By rejecting the Holy Spirit, the grace of God's love embodied, you can't receive it because you freely reject it. As long as you say no to God, no, it will be. In fact, the Holy Spirit is the very gift Jesus brought into the world by his sacrifice. As he told his disciples, quote, But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. That's uh, John 14:26. It's often invisible to us while we're alive, but this uh, fact comes through loud and clear when we at last go into the light. Jesus promised great things to come from the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, quote, But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will take from what is mine and make it known to you. That's John 16, 12 through 15. And we're talking literally about the whole world here. That's what I hear from this. The whole world was engulfed by the Spirit of grace, sent from God, that freely offers the changes Jesus brought to the world. In other words, if Christian theology is correct, then a profound spiritual enlightenment became available to us something that had not existed before in the history of the world. So how did this change the nature of our dying? Well, to start with, early Christian belief, still maintained in the Apostles' Creed today, indicates that the first thing Jesus did after his death on the cross was to descend into the realm of those who had died, to free the forgiven. In other words, his death on the cross was outside of time in a way that those who had sinned before he was born, uh, enjoyed the same grace that he was bestowing on those living and those yet to be born. In other words, the sins of many who had already died were forgiven in Christ's death. 
And uh, as Wikipedia tells it, this is direct from uh, from their description. In the context of Christian theology, the harrowing of hell, which means the descent of Christ into hell, is the Old English and Middle English term for the triumphant descent of Christ into hell or Hades between the time of his crucifixion and his resurrection when he brought salvation to all of the righteous who had died since the beginning of the world. And they put in parentheses, excluding the damned, which would be those, I suppose, who were too uh, uh, engulfed in sin to, to be forgiven. After his death, the soul of Jesus was supposed to have descended into the realm of the dead, which the Apostles' Creed calls hell. Um, it goes, he, is, he descended into hell the third day, rose again according to the scriptures, and so forth. Um, in some Christian theologies, it is believed that Jesus' soul remained united to the divinity during this time. The realm into which Jesus descended is called Sheol or Limbo by some Christian theologians. And that's uh, the end of the quote from Wikipedia. So now, here's the big question. If Jesus changed the nature of death itself, is there any way that NDEs could demonstrate that that possibility? Well, let's consider the NDE story of Ur, as told 400 years before Jesus in the last chapter of Plato's Republic. In fact, it's the last story that Socrates tells. Socrates says, Well, I said I will tell you a tale, a tale of a hero, Ur. E.R., the son of Arimenius, a Pamphylian by birth. He was slain in battle, and ten days afterwards, when the bodies of the dead were taken up already in a state of corruption, his body was found unaffected by decay and carried away home to be buried. Now, let me interrupt this for, for just a second. So far, this is the way near-death uh, experiences are reported, but as I as I read the story from the Republic, bear in mind uh, how different this is from uh, near death stories of today. The near death stories you've heard on this show and have probably read in the Ions uh, newsletter, all the all the stories of near death, even the even the bleak ones, even the dark NDEs, um, are not as dark as this. <laughs> So let me go back to it. And on the twelfth day, as Ur was lying on the funeral pyre, he returned to life and told them what he had seen on the other world. He said that when his soul left the body, he went on a journey with a great company, and that they came to a mysterious place at which there were two openings in the earth. They were near together, and over against them were two other openings in the heaven above. In the immediate space there were judges seated who commanded the just after they had been they had given judgment on them and had bound their sentences in front of them to ascend by the heavenly way on the right hand and in like manner the unjust were bidden by them to descend by the lower way on the left hand instant justice you die you go to this place and where you uh, where you meet judges and they say you're going up or you're going down and I'll tell you what this is for the most part not a permanent situation, but we'll get to uh, what happens to these souls afterwards. 
they also bore the symbols of their deeds. Those souls judged, but fastened on their backs. Ur drew near, and they told him that he was to be the messenger who would carry the report of the other's other world to men. And they bade him hear and see all that was to be heard and seen in that place. Then he beheld and saw on one side the souls departing at either opening of heaven and earth where sentence had been given on them, and at the two other openings, other souls, some ascending out of the earth, dusty and worn with travel, some descending out of heaven, clean and bright. And arriving ever and anon, they seemed to have come from a long journey, and they went forth with gladness into the meadow, where they encamped as at a festival. Now this meadow that he mentions sounds exactly like the place that many, many near-death experiencers have described. They come into a beautiful meadow, uh, 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 iridescent flowers, beautiful trees, and there they meet their friends, they meet their uh, their loved ones, even they even meet their pets. Uh, this part of the story matches. The judgment does not. To get back to it, and those who knew one another embraced and conversed the souls which came from earth they were the ones in this temporary hell, curiously inquiring about the things above. What's it like in heaven? And the souls which came from heaven about the things beneath. What's it like in hell? And they told one another of what had happened by the way. The, those from below weeping and sorrowing at the remembrance of the things which they had endured and seen in their journey beneath the earth. And and uh, Socrates says, now the journey lasted a thousand years while those from above were describing heavenly delights and visions of inconceivable beauty. The story would take too long to tell, Socrates says, but the sum was this. He said that for every wrong which they had done to anyone, they suffered tenfold. Or once in a hundred years, such being reckoned to be the length of a man's life, and the penalty being thus paid ten times in a thousand years. If, for example, there were any who had been the cause of many deaths, or had betrayed or enslaved cities or armies or had been guilty of any other evil behavior for each and all of their offenses they received punishment ten times over and the rewards of beneficence and justice and holiness were in the same proportion i need hardly repeat what he said concerning young children dying almost as soon as they were born of piety and impiety to gods and parents and of murderers there were retrib retributions other and greater far which he described he mentioned that he was present when one of the spirits asked, asked another, where is Ariadnes, the great, lived a thousand years before the time of Ur. He had been the tyrant in, of some city of Pamphylia and had murdered his aged father and his el elder brother and was said to have committed many other abominable crimes. The answer of the other spirit was, he comes not hither and will never come. And this, said he, was one of the dreadful sights which we ourselves witnessed. We were at the mouth of the cavern, and having completed all our experiences, were about to reascend when all of a sudden Ariadne appeared and several others, most of whom were tyrants. And there were also, besides the tyrants, private individuals who had been great criminals. They were just, as they fancied, about to return into the upper world, but the mouth, instead of admitting them, gave a roar whenever any of these incurable sinners or someone who had not been sufficiently punished tried to ascend. And then wild men of fiery aspect who were standing by and heard the sound seized and carried them off. 
and RDA um, and others, they bound head and foot and hand and threw them down and flayed them with scourges and dragged them along the road at the side, carding them on thorns like wool and declaring to the passers-by what were their crimes, that they were being taken away to be cast into hell. It sounds very much like Dante. It also sounds very much like um, the punishments of uh, the Bardo. And of all the many terrors which they had endured, he said there were none like the terror which each of them felt at that moment, lest they should hear their voice. And when there was silence, one by one they ascended with exceeding joy. These, said Ur, were the penalties and retributions, and there were blessings as great. Now when the spirits, uh, this is Socrates continuing, now when the spirits which were in the meadow had tarried seven days, On the eighth, they were obliged to proceed on their journey. And on the fourth day after, he said that they came to a place where they could see from above a line of light straight as a column, extending right through the whole heaven and through the earth, in color resembling the rainbow, only brighter and purer. And now as as an aside, there are some NDEs that have described uh, something similar to this. Um, And so this part of of the description might be just... As parallel as could be. Another day's journey brought them to the place, and there in the midst of the light they saw the ends of the chains of heaven let down from above. For this light is the belt of heaven and holds together the circle of the universe like the undergirders of a trireme. From these ends is extended the spindle of necessity on which all the revolutions turn, and here there is a long uh, description. Uh, that I'm going to omit because it's not really relevant to the point I'm trying to make here. But, uh, you can, <coughs> excuse me, we can always turn to the, uh, the end of the 10th chapter of, uh, Plato's Republic and find the entire text. The spindle turns on the knees of necessity. And necessity seems to be a, a, a big, uh, factor in this story, but, we're skipping some of that as well. And on the upper surface of each circle is a siren who goes around with them. Now, a siren uh, could be an angel to uh, to another viewer at another time. Hemming a single note or note. In other words, there are there are eight together form one harmony. So there are eight sirens, eight angels singing single notes that harmonize. And round about at equal intervals, there is another band three in number, each sitting upon her throne. And these are the fates, the daughters of necessity, who are clothed in white robes and have chaplets upon their heads. And we just uh, recently interviewed someone who saw something like this themselves. So now um, Socrates continues. When Ur and the spirits arrived, their duty was to go at once to Lachesis. This is a um, a spirit being. But first of all, there came a prophet who arranged them in order. Then he took from the knees of Lachesis lots and samples of lives, and having mounted a high pulpit, spoke as follows. Hear the word of Lachesis, the daughter of necessity. Mortal souls, behold a new cycle of life and mortality. Your genius will not be allotted to you, but you choose your genius. Now the genius it's implied as like a, almost like a guardian angel that will travel with you through your next life. And this is the beginning of how you, uh, decide who and what you'll, 
you want to be and do uh, on earth in your in your continued existence mortal souls behold a new cycle of life and mor- mortality your genius will not be allotted to you but you you choose your genius and let him who draws the first lot have the first choice and the life which he chooses shall be his destiny virtue is free and as a man honors or dishonors her he will have more or less of her that being virtue the the responsibility is with the chooser god is justified all but Ur himself, he was not allowed, and each of, as he took his lot, perceived the number which he had obtained. Then the interpreter placed on the ground before them the samples of lives, and there were many more lives than the souls present, than the souls present, and they, they were of all sorts. There were lives of every animal and of man in every condition, and there were tyrannies among them, some lasting out the tyrant's life, others which broke off in the middle and came to an end in poverty, in exile, and beggary. And there were lives of famous men, some who were famous for their form and beauty, as well as for their strength and success in games, or again for their birth and the qualities of their ancestors. And some who were the reverse of famous, for the opposite qualities. And of women, likewise, there was not, however, any definite character then, because the soul, when choosing a new life, must of necessity become different. But there was every other quality, and they all mingled with one another and also with elements of wealth and poverty and disease and health. And there were mean states also. And here, says uh, uh, Socrates, is the supreme peril of our human state, and therefore the utmost care should be taken. Let each one of us leave every other kind of knowledge and seek and follow one thing only. If peradventure he may be able to learn and may, may find someone who will make him able to learn and discern between good and evil, and so to choose always and everywhere the better life as he is opportunity. He should consider the bearing of all these things which have been mentioned severally and collectively upon virtue. He should know what the effect of beauty is when combined with poverty or wealth in a particular soul, and what are the good and evil consequences of noble and humble birth, of private and public station, of strength and weakness, of cleverness and dullness, and of all the soul and the operation of them when conjoined. He will then look at the nature of the soul, and from the consideration of all these qualities, he will be able to determine which is the better and which is the worse, and so he will choose giving the name of evil to the life which will make his soul more unjust and good to the life which will make his soul more just. All else he will disregard, for we have seen and know that this is the best choice both in life and after death. A man must take with him into the world below an adamantine faith in truth and right, that there too he may be undazzled by the desire of wealth or the other allurements of evil, lest coming upon tyrannies and similar villainies he do irremediable wrongs to others and suffer yet worse himself. But let him know how to choose the mean and avoid the extremes on either side as far as possible, not only in this life, but in all that which is to come, for this is the way of happiness. So what Socrates is describing here are the, uh, the benefits of reincarnation and the necessity for playing different roles in reincarnation. All of this is pre-Christian. This is all pre-Christian. This is the only way you can sort out your karma and become a stronger, better person because of the, all of the obligation is on your shoulders rather than on Christ. 
And according to the report of the messenger from the other world, this was to be, this is, was what the prophet said at the time, even for the last comer, if he chooses wisely and will live diligently, this is the last soul to pick up a lot. There is appointed a happy and not undesirable existence. Let him, let not him who chooses first be careless and let not the last despair. And when he had spoken, he who had the first choice came forward and, a mo- and in a moment chose the greatest tyranny, his mind having been darkened by folly and sensuality. He had not thought out the whole matter before he chose and did not at first sight perceive that he was f- fated among other evils to devour his own children, which actually hark- harkens back to the story about Saturn, but never mind that. But when he had time to reflect and saw what was in the lot, he began to beat his breast and lament over his choice, forgetting the proclamation of the prophet for Instead of throwing the blame of his misfortune on himself, he accused chance and the gods and everything rather than himself. Now he was one of those who came from heaven and in a former life had dwelled in a well-ordered state. But his virtue was a matter of habit only, and he had no philosophy. And it was true of others who were similarly overtaken that the greater number of them came from heaven, and therefore they had never been schooled by trial, whereas the pilgrims who came from earth having themselves suffered and seen others suffer, were not in a hurry to choose. In other words, <laughs> it's the perversity of our nature that we don't l- learn by being uh, blessed. We learn by being cursed because the curse teaches us the lessons that we need to learn in order to be blessed. And this is the irony of karma and the irony of reincarnation as a path to doing better. It's, it's a beautiful description as far as I can tell. To continue, and owing to this inexperience of theirs, and also because the lot was a chance, many of the souls exchanged a good destiny for an evil or an evil for a good. For if a man had always on his arrival in this world dedicated himself from the first to sound philosophy and had been moderately fortunate in the number of the lot, he might, as the as the messenger reported, be happy here, and also his journey to another life and return to this instead of being rough and underground would be smooth and heavenly. Most curious, he said, was the spectacle, sad and laughable and strange. For the choice of the souls was in most cases based on their experience of a previous life, and not only did men pass into animals, but I must also mention that there were animals tame and wild who changed into one another and into corresponding human natures. The good into the gentle and the evil into the savage in all sorts of combinations. All the souls had now chosen their lives, and they went in the order of their choice to Lachesis, uh, beneath the throne of necessity, and when they had all passed, they marched on in a scorching heat to the plain of forgetfulness, where was a barren waste destitute of trees, and there, towards the evening, they encamped by a river of unmindfulness, whose water no vessel can hold of this. They were all obliged to drink a certain quantity, and those who were not saved by wisdom drank more than was necessary, and each one, as he drank, forgot all things. Now, after they had gone to to rest about the middle of the night, there was a thunderstorm and an earthquake, and then, in an instant, they were driven upwards in all manner of ways to their birth, like stars shooting. He himself was hindered from drinking the water, he being Ur. But in what manner or by what means he returned to the body, he could not say. Only in the morning, awaking suddenly, he found himself lying on the pyre. 
Well, that's the story of, uh, from, for the most part, from uh, Plato's Republic. This is pre-Christian, and it is very different in many ways. It's it's much more complete than many uh, near-death stories that we hear today, but it is much more um, hazardous. And what it does is it it demonstrates that heaven is only a stopover, heaven, hell, the afterlife, the underworld is only a stopover to the pre-Christian uh, on his way back into life again in order to deal with more problems, uh, more responsibilities, more blessings and curses, which can alternate dr- radically. This is not a happy situation as far as I can see. Um, it's uh, it's something that, that uh, I mean, we were... we're we were in trouble both in life and in death. And this is something that, uh, according to Christian theology, Jesus came and straightened out. Socrates says at the end, and thus the tale has been saved and has not perished and will save us if we are obedient, obedient to the word spoken. And we shall pass safely over the river of forgetfulness and our soul will not be defiled. Wherefore, my counsel is that we hold fast ever to the heavenly way and follow after justice and virtue always. Considering that the soul is immortal and able to endure every sort of good and every sort of evil, thus shall we live dear to one another and to to the gods, both while remaining here and when, like conquerors in the games who go round to gather gifts, we receive our reward. And it shall be well with us both in this life and then the pilgrimage of a thousand years, which we have been describing. The end. Now stop and think for a minute. Does this sound like any contemporary near-death experience you've encountered? Yet this may very well have been a typical example of what an NDE before the coming of Christ was all about. It began with judgment. Uh, the only thing equivalent to that uh, are, uh, is the near uh, is the life review that we go through, and occasionally, very occasionally, we have a, a distressing NDE. But if the person stays with it long enough, they seem to come through to the other side and have the chance to go into the light. Then there's this dividing of souls between heaven and hell. In other words, it's and and both of these states are temporary, except for those who are either unusually blessed or unusually uh, bad in their in their previous life. For most, that state was not permanent. Eventually, they assembled for a joyous time in a beautiful field. And this beautiful field is perhaps the only description similar to many of the NDEs of today, as I said before. Then after that mandatory reincarnation, you don't get to stay around with future lives doled out partly by choice, partly by lots, uh, it's it's fate and um, your own ability to discern what you need to go through in your next life. The luck of the draw. So what could have brought about so different a picture of the typical near-death experience as described before and after Christ? I would argue it is in Christianity's interest to examine this question, for NDEs might very well provide the verification of what Jesus did for humanity. By his sacrifice, he restored God's fellowship to humanity and the light and love we find so easy to approach 
in our NDEs of today. Well, we're just about out of time for today. If, if you would like to listen to the show again or any other of our programs, please visit our website at nderadio.org. And for more information about IANDS, please check that website at iands.org. There will be information on that site about our upcoming Labor Day weekend conference on NDEs, Health and Healing, in Newport Beach, California, from August 28th through the 31st. I look forward to seeing you there. Thanks for listening.